If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. We're jumping back into the book of Luke. We've been out of it for about four weeks now. Uh, it was a nice break, and I'm excited to get back in and uh, hear what's next in the story. We begin a large section that will go through chapter 9 in the book of Luke, which is typically uh, recognized as Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And so this is the beginning of that, um, coming on the heels of his baptism and his temptation. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 4, beginning in, in verse 14. Uh, Carolyn gave my wife a book called Boards of the Earth. Uh, it's the story of a, a missionary named Stanley Albert Dale. He's from Australia and ended up in Erie and Jaya in the 1960s, uh, preaching the gospel as a missionary to a cannibalistic tribe in the jungles of Erie and Jaya. Uh, my wife read it, and as she was reading it, she just kept shaking her head and verbal responses and, and whatnot, so I figured I'd better read this book and figure out what's going on. Um, and so we read the book, and I, I'm, I'm in the midst of it. I haven't finished it yet. I'll try not to give away the details if you're interested in reading it. Maybe Karen will let you borrow it, but I have to finish it first. So, um, But Stanley Aberdell was a unique man, and the tribe that he went to was unique as well. They were in this remote valley. They served a god that they called Kembu, and his practices were oppressive. They were murderous. And Stan Dale arrived, and he quickly made it clear that the message that he was proclaiming was dramatically opposed to the beliefs that these uh, the people had. And he had no issue making that very clear to them. He was very bold and uncompromising in his uh, his proclamation, and he had faith to walk literally right into the midst of danger, um, armed only with the truth of the gospel. And so the people in the valley are forced to make a decision. Uh, they have to fall on, on some side of this issue, there were those that, that opposed the message. I mean, they were angry with what he was saying about their God. One of the first hymns that, that Stanley Dale wrote, to give you a, a flavor of his character, I think had the line something like, Kembu is evil. Um, so he was very upfront and honest with the people about what he understood, trying to break down and help them understand uh, what he believed uh, the gospel to be. And they were so angry that they were just waiting for the right moment to lash out and, and kill him. Um, others were, were interested, but they remained aloof, literally sometimes, up in the hills, listening, but not really wanting to come near. They, they were intrigued, uh, but they weren't ready to, to go in yet and fully commit. And yet, by God's grace, there were others who believed Stan's message, who believed the gospel, um, and turned by faith. And I'm in the midst of this, this story, and as it's, it's kind of coming to a head in many ways... But it's very interesting to, to think about Stanley Dale and the ministry that he had. And it, and it reminds me of what of the ministry of Jesus, of the gospel wherever it goes. That as Jesus comes, he has the same effect on the people that he begins to talk to. That, that some, you have to make some sort of decision about uh, what he is saying. And in Luke 4, he doesn't go to a remote village. But in Luke 4, uh, Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes to, to Nazareth. And even there, he causes quite a stir amongst the people of Nazareth. Because, and I, I want this to be our main point this morning, because when Jesus comes to town, everyone must respond. When Jesus comes to town, everyone must respond. We'll think on that theme in a couple different ways. Uh, the first way we'll think about it is, is who Jesus is revealed to be. Uh, who is he to be? And so we'll have seven he is statements. Here is who Jesus is revealed to be. He is this. 
Uh, and then also three, react three reactions, three reactions very similar to the ones I described that happened uh, to the Yali people, um, three reactions that we might have to Jesus. But when Jesus comes to town, everyone must respond because of who he is. Let's read this passage together, Luke chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 14 and read through verse 30. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was, not sent, to, was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What an amazing story, isn't it? I hope you see that when Jesus comes to town, everyone must respond. There's a few different ways to respond, but if they respond to who he is. And the first thing we see about who Jesus is, is right there in, in verse 14, he is empowered by the Spirit. He is empowered by the Spirit. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, the Spirit is something that we've seen a lot in Luke, haven't we? He's always bringing up the Holy Spirit, and especially in recent events, we saw at the baptism of Jesus that the Holy Spirit, what, descends on Jesus as a dove and it anoints him and empowers him in that moment. And then it says in, in verse four, in chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus' ministry is marked by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus returns from, this, uh, from being tempted in the power of the Spirit. Now, remember, Luke's writing, he says, an orderly account. Now, that doesn't mean it's a chronology. And so this is probably not what immediately followed Jesus' temptation uh, in the wilderness. We know that because they're talking about ministry that he's already done in Capernaum. They, they bring that up. 
So this isn't Jesus' first place of ministry, but, but Luke brings it out here at the beginning to, to prove this point, to show that when Jesus shows up, people have to make some sort of a decision. And so he had been going around in the power of the Spirit doing ministry, so much so that reports are going out about him throughout all the surrounding country. The news is spreading. You know, AP is picking up stories about Jesus going around doing all of these things, and they're reporting about what's happening. And it says that he's teaching in their synagogues. So Jesus already has a ministry going when he arrives in his hometown. He's, he's teaching in synagogues. He's performed some miracles. News about him is, is spreading, and now the hometown boy is, is getting ready to come home. But he's empowered by the Spirit is what we see here. He's empowered by the Spirit. That's the first thing we see about him. We also see the first response that we might have. Verse 15, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What a statement. Glorified praised, lifted up. He's, he's worshipped by all as he preaches and as he performs these miraculous signs. He is, he is glorified. So one way that we respond is we praise and glorify him. We praise and glorify him. That's what the response of these people was. The, the response of the people in the surrounding towns, they, they recognize who he is. They honor him as God. So he's empowered by the Spirit, and one way to respond is that we praise and glorify him. Here we see Jesus, this beloved Son of God. He's empowered by the Spirit. He's extolled by all the people in the surrounding country, and he begins to walk this familiar path that led him back to his childhood home. So we see next that he is, he is a Nazarene. He is a Nazarene. Isn't that amazing to think? Jesus wouldn't be called um, Jesus the Christ until later on, he would have been Jesus, the son of Joseph, or he would have been Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he was from. That's how people recognize him. He was, he was a Nazarene. It says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Have you had that experience of, of returning to the place where you grew up, uh, going back to your hometown, maybe after being away for, for some time. Some people never leave their hometown. You know, they, they stay there the whole life, so they wouldn't really know what this experience is like, but there's people that do. Uh, you've, you've left and then you return. So you might have an idea of what it would feel like for Jesus to return back to Nazareth. You know, when you do that, there's nostalgia, there's excitement about going back to, to the town. You enter the town limits, and you start to link up places in your mind with memories. Maybe you drive by the, the house where you used to live or the parks you used to play in, and you see all the changes that everyone else has seen. They just mean something more to you. Oh, they tore that building down. I, look, they built this new restaurant here. You start to see things that not everyone else has, has seen, and... And so you're excited. There's also maybe, there's other emotions, maybe sadness, maybe even anger that wells up in you as you reflect on different locations and different things that have happened there. You see people, you see friends and family that maybe you haven't seen in a long time, joy of reuniting with them. So we might imagine Jesus in the same way, walking back in to Nazareth, this well-known road to him. And he reminisces on his, his childhood days. He thinks about what that was like. He walks those streets that he had played with. Uh, played with his friends in, with his siblings in. Maybe he, he went to his home kind of before before everyone knew that he was in town. He went and looked at his home or maybe looked at the place where he and Joseph had um, practiced carpentry together. And while I'm sure there was joy and, and nostalgia, there's there's also probably some pain, some sorrow. We, we assume at this point actually that Joseph is probably not alive anymore, that he has passed on. And so uh, we can, we assume that. 
and so there would be some some sorrow associated with that 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 Joseph is no longer that this this man who was a father figure to him that he is he's not a part of this town anymore maybe Jesus even remembered some of the rejection that he probably felt early on that surrounded his life and he probably knows very well what is about to happen that he's showing up with these big claims to the town filled with in a town where where everyone knows him What's that going to be like? He knows the storm that he's about to stir up in this familiar place. And the text tells us here that he went to the synagogue, verse 16, on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Just in passing, I think that's a neat phrase to notice. As was his custom, this is what Jesus did. He was raised to be with God's people on the Sabbath day, and so that's what he did. He went to gather with God's people on the Sabbath day, and this, this should be our custom. We should, we should see it as our normal practice that when God's people are gathered together, we should be there. It should seem strange to us to not be with God's people on the Sabbath day. So Jesus returns to what we might call his, his home church. Maybe you've got a home church. You can think about that. Jesus returns to his home church. And he returns not just as, as little Jesus, but as a recognized rabbi, as a, as a teacher in that day. And he's given this unique opportunity to actually do the scripture reading and, and provide the interpretation of the scripture, to provide the message for that day. So the hometown boy is, is going to preach the message at his home church. And so he, he comes and, and Luke is, is very deliberate in this description that he provides of what happens there in the synagogue. He could have simply said, and Jesus read, and then posted the text, but that's not what he does. He has these these parallel details that surround this quote from Isaiah that, that bring it out for us. Look at these with me. Verse End of verse 16, it says, he stood up. He stood up to read. He stand, we might picture him rising and standing before the people. They stood in reverence uh, for God's word. It says he stood up. Then at the beginning of verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So the attendant comes and gives him the scroll of the reading for that day. There would have been other readings before that, but this was the, the reading for that day. And they give him the scroll of Isaiah. So he takes this scroll. And then it says, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he takes the scroll to the place where he will read and he, he, he unrolls it. Now, there may have been an assigned reading for that moment, for that morning, but I think that Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah and he says, I know what I want to read. And he finds the place. And maybe everyone's wondering, why is he not going? And we had it marked out. It was ready to go. We knew what he was supposed to read. But he says, no, I'm going to Isaiah 61. Of course, it wasn't Isaiah 61 at that point. There was no <laughs> chapter associated with it. But, but he knew where he was going. And so he goes to this passage. He he unrolls the scroll. He stood up. He was given the scroll. He unrolls it. He finds the place. Then he, he reads. And then uh, just skip over verses 18 and 19 for now. Verse 20 says, he rolled up the scroll. So as he had unrolled it, he rolls it back up. He returns it to the attendant, it says. As he had been given the scroll, he now gives it back. And then he sits down. As he had stood up, now he sits down. So there's this parallel account, focusing in on these words. He sits down. Uh, it's not like uh, when Jed came up and he read the scripture and then he went back to his seat. But rather, Jesus comes, he reads the scripture, and then he sits down in the place of teaching that they would have sat to teach. I think we should do that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Jesus sat to teach, so maybe we should have a chair up here. Um, no, just kidding. But you can't um, be mad at people that preach from stools now, you know. Um, anyways, so he sits down to teach. He sits in the chair of, of teaching. And as he sits down, look at the text there. It says, 
um, he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I imagine, you know, Luke compiled this account from eyewitnesses, and I just wonder if maybe he was in Nazareth with someone that was there. All these details. I remember he stood up and he took the scroll and he unrolled it, read, and then he would roll it up. And we were all just staring at him. What is he going to say next? There's this tension that, that builds and everyone's staring at him. And what does he say? I don't think this is the full message, but this is the core of it. He says, today, today, this very day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, before we see what scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing, I think we should recognize that what Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is saying that this is, a, this is a clearly messianic text. And what he says, he says, this is me. I am the one that this text is talking about. I'm not only the one that this specific text is talking about, but I'm the one that all of the prophets speak of. I am the one that all of the Old Testament is pointing to. They are talking about me. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. More specifically, though, according to verses 18 and 19, he is anointed and sent by the Spirit. He is anointed and sent by the Spirit. Look at that, these, these key verses, 18 and 19, what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's anointed and sent by the Spirit. He's anointed and sent by the Spirit to proclaim. Isn't that very clear? Three times, to proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim. The broad title we could say is, what's Jesus proclaiming? He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. God's favor has come. This is the age of God's favor. I'm bringing in the messianic age that, that brings God's favor. You remember when the, when the clouds parted at Jesus' baptism, we, and we kind of paused there and said, what could have come out? What could have come out of the sky? Could it have been a lightning bolt? Could it have been God coming down in judgment? But what comes out? A dove. The Holy Spirit comes, and it's this symbol of peace that, that Christ has come to bring peace. He has come to make peace. And here he says, he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's interesting, actually, is if you go back to Isaiah 61, Jesus stops at a very um, important place. Let me tell you what he would have read if he would have read just one line more from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stops. The next line, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. He stops there. He doesn't read that line. There's something unique about that. The the Jewish people, as they waited for the Messiah, expected him to come in this way at the same time, that he would come to bring favor for them and judgment for everyone else right at the same time. And Jesus says, no, these these purposes, in fact, are, are split. For now, I'm coming in favor. I'm coming in peace. I'm coming in forgiveness. There will be a day when God comes in vengeance that is still in the future. But Jesus says, right now, this is the day of the Lord's favor. 
He gets specific. He's proclaiming. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming good news, gospel, proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's proclaiming recovering of sight to the blind. He has a message for those who are poor and those who are captive and those who are blind. It's an interesting thing. Luke very really focuses in on the poor um, and on the disenfranchised. And some people take this text and say, well, Jesus is all about social justice. Jesus is about helping the poor and the captives and, and those that are sick and those that are in need. And, and he is. Jesus cares for all of those situations. But primarily, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their need of God. He's speaking to those who are captive in their sin. Galatians 4.8 says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. There's an enslavement that we have apart from God. He's speaking to the blind, those that are spiritually blind. For 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, did Jesus come and help the poor? Did he give sight to people that were actually physically blind? Did he help the captives? Yes, he did all of this as, as, a, as a picture of what he had really come to do. The scholar D.A. Carson says that Jesus cares about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Jesus comes and he shows that he cares about those that are suffering. But more importantly, what does he care about? He cares about eternal suffering. He cares about saving people from eternal judgment, from eternal suffering. I think we know this because it's been the theme throughout the book of Luke. What does Zechariah say Jesus has come to do? He has come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Simeon comes in. Simeon says he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of your people Israel. He is salvation for people. And so Jesus comes and he provides good things and he, we are to care for the poor and for the captives and for the blind, but ultimately we are to care for the souls of the poor and the captive and the blind. And ultimately what he's saying is, if you are to receive my message, you need to recognize that you are poor, that you are enslaved to sin, and that you are blind. That story of Naaman, even this morning as, as Jed was reading, struck me. You see Naaman's pride? He says, why can't I go to another river? Why am I? Why is Elisha not at the, the palace where the king is? And why didn't he come out here and talk to myself and just wave his hand over me and, and cure me? Why do I have to do all this crazy stuff and go wash myself in the filthy Jordan? Well, because he didn't realize his need at that point. He thought he was something special. Jesus, who has Jesus come for? He's come for the poor. He's come for the captives. He's come for the blind. And don't project that on other people. That's us. He's come for us because we are poor. We have nothing to offer to God. We are captive in our sin. We are blind. We do not see Christ apart from his doing. That's who he's come for. He's anointed and sent by the Spirit to proclaim this message. But also I think it's interesting, he doesn't just proclaim it, but he accomplishes it. There's a unique phrase there. It says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus hasn't come just as the prophets or as John did and said, it's coming, there's, there's something that's happening. But what does he say? I will set those that are oppressed free. I will accomplish this good news. I will bring it about. I will bring about the liberty. I will bring about the sight. I will bring about the good news. 
all of this comes together to reveal that Jesus is proclaiming that, that he is the Messiah. He, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is anointed by the Spirit, and he is the Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for. He is the Savior of the world. He has come to bring salvation. He is the Messiah. We saw the first response of the people of the surrounding country was that they glorified Jesus. What's the response here in Nazareth? You can see it in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So what's one way we can respond? We, can, we, are, we are astonished. We are astonished. And then maybe put a little dot, 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 and a little skeptical. <laughs> We're astonished at who Jesus is, and a little skeptical about who he is. The people hear this message, and, and they love it. I mean, they love what Jesus is saying. They look at one another and say, man, what a great teacher little Jesus has grown up to be. I mean, he did, did you love the words that he said? I mean, they were they were beautiful. That's, in a sense, what it says there. They, they, it says they marveled at the gracious words. They loved the way that he spoke. They thought it was just beautiful. I mean, it is a beautiful message, isn't it? I've come to pronounce the Lord's favor. They're astonished at him. They're, they're surprised. They're, they're just, they love what he said. They spoke well of him. And then they started to think about what he said. And they said, is he really saying what I think he's saying? And this doubt begins to creep in. They become uh, a little skeptical. They realize that this is all a little extreme, what Jesus is saying, especially for being the town carpenter's son. I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't, don't we know? We knew Joseph, and we know his family. It's, this just seems a little strange. He uses that phrase uh, later on, a prophet has no honor in his own country, because these people know him. They, they, he's grown up in their midst. You know, you can imagine the ladies in the synagogue saying, "I changed his diaper in the synagogue nursery." I mean, I know this guy. Um, and maybe some of the people said, "You know, he helped put the addition on at my house." Uh, I, I know Jesus really well. And maybe his childhood friends were there, his neighbors, those that had known him all his life, and they're just not ready to bow their knee to Nazareth's carpenter. I don't know. I mean, he sounds, this is a little extreme. And their familiarity with Jesus caused them to question the boldness of his claims. It doesn't really say that as clearly, but Jesus knows what, what they're thinking. He knows that they're thinking about, well, we heard about all this stuff he did in Capernaum. You know, I mean, he did all these great miracles there. Maybe, maybe if he did one of those, then then I might believe that he's actually who he says he is. And Jesus sees right into their hearts, and he points this out. He says to them, verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, this proverb that would have been known. It's hard to know exactly what he's saying by that proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But in a sense, what the people are saying is, Prove it, Jesus. You're saying all these great things about you. Now do some of the things that you did in Capernaum so that we know that this is true. Mark tells us in his account of this that it's because they didn't believe. It's because of their lack of faith, because they were skeptical. They're astonished, but they're skeptical. I think this is a typical response to who Jesus is, and maybe even in our own hearts, that people think, wow, 
He's got some great things to say. I love the beauty of his words. I just don't know if I really believe all this stuff that he's saying about the favor of the Lord, being sent by God, being the Savior. And I don't know that I'm willing to admit that I'm poor and enslaved to sin and, and blind. But, you know, what he says sounds really nice. I just don't know that I'm ready to bow my knee to him. So Jesus knows this. He knows it's in their hearts. He knows it's in our heart. And what does he what does he say? He doesn't perform the signs, does he? Instead, he draws a parallel between himself and the two prophets that we read about, Elijah and Elisha. Two prophets who in their day were rejected by their own people and then sent to Gentiles. That's the point of these two stories. The point of Elijah is, listen, there were a whole bunch of widows in Israel. And Elijah didn't go to any of them. He went to a woman in Zarephath who was not in Israel. And he brought help to her. And Elisha, there were lepers all over Israel. But he didn't go to any of those lepers. He healed Naaman from Syria, who was a Gentile. So Jesus says, if you want to reject me, that's fine. I will be, I will be right in line with Elisha, with Elijah. I'll go to the Gentiles. It makes it clear a thing that we've seen that will make another one of our points about who Jesus is. It's all throughout the book of Luke. It's the main point in many ways that he is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of the world. He has come to bring salvation not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. He is the Savior of the world. And the people in Nazareth know exactly what he's saying. You know, it started out, we saw these people, their response was that they glorified and praised Jesus. And here in Nazareth, we saw that, that they were astonished and a little skeptical. What's the third response? Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. We are filled with anger. That's the other response. Third response to Jesus and who he says he is. They are filled with anger. They rise up. Verse 29, they drove him out of the town, brought him to this hill, and they were going to throw him down, probably to throw him down and then to stone him. Throw him down this cliff to kill him. Why? Why such a strong response? I think there's a couple things going on that we can see in the text. I think one is they're saying, we don't need your salvation. We don't need the salvation you're proclaiming. You're saying this is for poor, for captives, and for blind people. And that's not us. We're not oppressed. We are the people of God. We are the children of Israel. So if you want to bring salvation to us, then you need to come with a little bit more respect, Jesus, because we're, you know, we're pretty good middle class people, and this isn't the kind of message that we want to hear. But he's come for those that are poor and blind and captive, and they're not ready for that. And they also, they say, we don't want your salvation, but they don't deserve your salvation. These Gentiles, that's, if you're going to go to the Gentiles, then you are disowning your roots. You're disowning your Jewish heritage. You're saying that you're going to people that are outside of the covenant, at least in their minds. All this joy at the hometown boy coming home has suddenly gone right out the window. You know, as I read this, I thought, do I preach a gospel that would get me thrown off a cliff? Do we preach the gospel in such a way that people will respond by wanting to kill us? 
I shared that story of Stanley Dale. And I would not um, give that to someone as a textbook for how to do missions necessarily. But I'll tell you what, he was very clear about what the gospel was. There's a time where he, he says we need people to understand that they can't take Jesus and add him to the sum total of the other gods that are in their tents. And he says, if you guys are Christians, you need to go in those tents and bring them out, and we're going to burn them all. And he creates quite a stir, you would imagine. So and in many ways, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's saying, you, you either receive these words or you reject them. And when we present the gospel, I think sometimes we get to the place where people say, I really like what Jesus says. I'm not really sure that he's everything that he said, but I like what he said, and, and we're okay with that. We allow people to sit in that, that limbo place where they say, yeah, Jesus is a good teacher, and I like some of the stuff that he said. I'm just not going to buy everything that he said. And we say, well, at least they're there. That's, you know, that's a pretty good place. And it, it is a good place. And yet, do we leave people, or do we press and say, listen, he's either Lord of your life or, or he, he's against you. And I think in our own lives, maybe, maybe even someone here, that's, you, you've, you've made Jesus just, He's just a good teacher. He's just a kind guy. He's a nice person. He's got some good things to say. I like to read the Gospels. But that's not what he says he is. He says that he's the Savior of the world. He says that he's come to bring salvation. He says that he's the Messiah. He says that he's God. If we preach that, there's some that will want to throw us off a cliff. Let's not let people remain pleasantly astonished, but skeptical. And let's not just remain pleasantly astonished and skeptical ourselves, but to recognize that to follow Christ is to make a clean break in our lives. Let's proclaim a gospel that could get us thrown off a cliff, if need be. Now, how does a man facing an entire town that's filled with rage walk through them completely unscathed? Isn't that what it says? But passing through their midst, he went away. That's like the understatement of the year, isn't it? I mean, they are there. They have him ready to throw him over the cliff and to kill him. And he passes through their midst. How? I think uh, there's a lot of things we could say, but I think just the last statement about who he is, he is sovereign. He is, he is sovereign. As John says in his gospel, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time for Jesus to be killed. But he would be. Think about the parallel here. A day would come when he would be driven up a different hill. Not to be thrown down, but to be lifted up on a cross. And we know that that in that moment, if he had wanted to, he surely could have split through the crowd as well. He could have walked straight through unscathed if he had wanted to. But Jesus willingly laid down his life. And he willingly did it so that he could accomplish the words that he says in verses 18 and 19, so that he could usher in the first fruits of the year of the Lord's favor, so that he could not only proclaim through his life and even proclaim in his death good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, not just proclaim it, but accomplish it. How does he accomplish these words? How does he bring good news? How does he bring liberty? How does he bring sight to those that are spiritually blind? It's through the cross. Jesus lays down his life, and as he does it, he 
proclaims and he accomplishes our salvation. He proclaims that his wounds will heal our deep spiritual sickness. He proclaims that we are freed from our bondage to sin. He proclaims that he gives us spiritual sight and he accomplishes it. He accomplishes bringing the salvation that he has come to bring to all nations. The shadow of the cross is even in this passage as they desire to kill him. And right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he divides the crowd. When Jesus comes to town, everyone must respond in one way or another. Some are going to look at Jesus with astonishment. They're going to be amazed at his lovely words, at the, at the beauty of what he says, but they'll remain skeptical as to whether or not he's actually the Savior, as, as if he is really all that he says that he is, as if he really has come to bring the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor in. Others will go further. Others will respond in anger or reject his claims. They'll declare that they don't need the salvation that he has come to offer. But I pray that we would respond as those in the surrounding country did. We would glorify him. That we would lift up the name of Jesus as the, the man from Nazareth, the man who was the Son of God, who was sent from the Father to be lifted up, to die, and then to rise, and then to ascend and return to his Father, so that we might be free from our captivity to sin, so that we would be able to see out of our spiritual blindness, to see the truth of the good news that Jesus has come to proclaim and accomplish. I've been struck afresh with one of the purposes of preaching is to lift up Jesus, to see who he is, and I pray that you see the majesty of who Christ is, of all these things that he is. He's empowered by the Spirit, that he was a man from Nazareth, that he was filled with the Spirit to proclaim a message. That he is sovereign over all things. That he is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament said. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Savior of the world. Jesus is, is more than we could ever imagine. And how will we respond? Not simply when he comes to our town, but when he comes to our lives. When he comes to us, we're placed at a crossroads to make a decision. Will we be astonished, but skeptical? Will we respond in anger? Will we bow our knee and say, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God? We all must make a decision. Not only for our own lives, but I pray that we would go about and proclaim this good news, that we would proclaim it clearly, recognizing that people respond in many different ways, but that we are called to follow in the Lord's footsteps and to proclaim this message. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And then I'll close this in prayer and we will um, sing a closing song followed by our benediction. But let's just take some time to think on who Jesus is and how we would respond to him. Father, we come as people that are poor and captive and blind and oppressed apart from Jesus. But if we have placed our faith in you alone, and what you have done on the cross in dying for our sins, being raised again for our justification, Lord, then we see the truth. You have made us rich in Christ, and we are set free from sin, no longer oppressed, Lord, and your favor is upon us. Lord, I pray that we would respond 
with worship to you, that we would bow our knee and give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, thank you that when you came, you came to bring favor, to pronounce and to accomplish the favor of of the Lord. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for the beautiful words that Jesus says. May we not just see them as beautiful, but as life-changing. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.